In the summer of 1972, I moved from Arizona to New York into my friend David's roach-infested brownstone studio apartment on West 75th between Broadway and Columbus. We'd grown up together in Phoenix and now, in our early 20s, had recently reconnected. David, certain I had what it took to be a Broadway star, had convinced me to come. No one had ever expressed that kind of confidence in me, not my mother, not my absent biological father, nor the two other men my mother married and divorced by the time I was 12. <laughs> David's belief in me was impossible to resist. I hadn't calculated how much money I'd need in New York. The $500 I'd saved from my bartending job in Scottsdale disappeared. <laughs> after I paid my half of the rent and at David's insistence, bought a series of dance classes at the Alvin Ailey studio. He took me to a dance audition for Gypsy for a non-union theater in New Jersey. Act sexy, he said. I did, and they gave me a part. I told you you have theatrical potential. I turned down the role. There was no pay, I had to work. David introduced me to Diane, his agent at a temp agency, who sent him on jobs to clean apartments, walk dogs, and serve at private parties. She found office work for me and arranged an interview to teach ballroom dancing at the Fred Astaire Dance Studio. After a few weeks, tired of being groped by strange, lonely men, I quit to cheer myself up I went to Bergdorf Goodman's, opened a charge account, and bought a pair of $300 sky blue rhinestone studded high-heeled suede boots. <laughs> <clears throat> I wore them that night when David and I, in matching vintage Foxford jackets, made our usual rounds of the disco clubs. Sometimes, Diane sent David and me to work a party together, dressed like androgynous twins. We were both six feet tall, had the same lean, long body and short, dark blonde hair. We spun around, bumped hips and shoulders while humming Dancing Machine as we served drinks, never spilling a drop. We'd come home and after killing a few cockroaches, David would heat up pizza slices or make potatoes in a variety of ways. We'd eat day-old French pastries for dessert before opening up the pull-out sofa, which we had to share, and falling into bed exhausted. I hadn't expected to work so hard to get by. I was bone-tired, working all day, taking dance and singing lessons at night, dragging myself around the city, walking long distances in high heels and tiptoeing over subway grates. When winter came, it snowed several inches. I'd never lived in snow and didn't have proper footwear. I had high heels, fake snakeskin platforms, and clogs, which is what I wore with two pairs of socks and David's beat-up ankle-length wool coat. He walked with me to the subway or the bus stop and held my arms so I wouldn't stumble. The other thing I hadn't expected was to fall in love with David. For my birthday, he gave me a bouquet of red roses and a 1940s beaded sweater. For Christmas, he surprised me with an Art Deco comb and brush set that I'd spotted in a store window months before. And for Valentine's Day, a handmade black-laced heart-shaped card. Nothing had happened yet. His constant gift-giving got my hopes up. 
but when he took me to a New Year's Eve party on a gay boat cruise around the Hudson, <laughs> and I saw men sucking each other's cocks in the middle of the dance floor, while David watched, mesmerized by the scene, and the Pointer Sisters sang, I'm so excited, my suspicion that he might be gay was confirmed. <laughs> But my body continued to crave his. I liked waking up next to him and at night lying beside him. I fantasized about his hand stroking my body and guiding him inside me. I wondered if he'd ever been with a woman. Before we left Arizona, David's Italian mother told me she wanted a grandchild. She took me aside and said, He's very well hung, you won't be disappointed. <laughs> One night, <clears throat> David came home late from a bar. I lay still, waiting for him to fall asleep. His sweet, woody smell mixed with smoke, cheap pine cologne, and gin excited me. So did the thought of David with a strange-smelling man. It made me want to prove that sex with me could be better. I let my hand drift to the edge of his lanky thigh, stroked the length of his taut muscles. Maybe now was the time to take his mother's advice. <laughs> David stirred, whispered, whispered my name, and turned away. I touched myself instead, silently giving in to my desire. The next morning, David told me he had a vision in the bar, a message from the grave, he said. He sat on the window ledge by the heater with his legs crossed. I saw my grandmother's face in the mirror behind the bar, a white mist around her head, he said. I brought him a cup of coffee. Then what? I heard her voice. I feel crazy telling you this. Well, what did she say? He turned toward the snow-framed window. The heater hissed. She said you and I were supposed to be together, like really together, for life. My skin tingled, a message from the grave held potential for conversion. <laughs> what do you think, I asked. I think she's right. You know I love you, but David turned toward me, his eyes brimming with tears. Maybe I could, I, I don't know. For a while, I initiated lengthy conversations about how and when we might take the sexual leap. He would definitely have to be drunk. He was afraid I'd make fun of him. I imagined he'd be disgusted by me. I started to feel like a beggar, so I decided to pray to Grandma. <laughs> Out of desperation and rejection with no money for a therapist, I walked into St. Monica's, the neighborhood Catholic church, and asked to see a priest. I wasn't Catholic, and I wasn't sure I believed in God, but David did. Father Jim sat across from me, his stubby hands folded over his belly, and asked me to tell him about my family and David's. He said it sounded like David wasn't so much gay as afraid of intimacy. If he'll come for counseling, he said, there might be a chance for the two of you. If he won't, ask yourself why you've chosen an unavailable man. David wouldn't talk to a priest. I decided to take Father Jim's advice and told David I had to move out. I can't believe you're deserting me, he said, pacing around the apartment, holding a little white bag from the bakery where he'd gone to get pastries. I'd started to pack and hoped to be gone by the time he came back. 
It's not your fault, but I feel deserted every night, I said, folding my clothes into a black garbage bag. I can't take the rejection. I'm not rejecting you. I love you, he said. I need to feel desired. I don't want to be a 30-year-old fag hag. You would never be that. I desire you, but it stops at a certain point. I want it to change. You need to find a man, David. I'd finally said the truth. I know what we can do. He wrote something on a piece of paper. Sign this. It's like a contract. If at age 35, neither one of us is in a relationship, we can get together again and have a child. What? Why not? You never know how things will go. You're crazy, I said. But the promise of a future last resort, however unlikely, made it easier to let go. So I signed the paper before I left. At 35, <laughs> I remembered our contract. I'd lost track of David. I was married with no children. It had taken me years to choose who I thought was an available man. I was sure I'd never divorce him, but unlike my mother, I would only do it once. I couldn't find a straight man with the qualities I'd loved in David. I gave up the search some years ago. Sometimes I think about my young, naive self and that time in New York with David and his grandmother's message from the grave that we were meant to be together. But now I'm content to live on my own.